0: Chapter 15 of The Way to Willpower by Henry Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15, Second and Third Wins We have dealt with the humbler tasks. We come now to the tasks that are not so humble. We have considered how we may perform our routine duties. But men of a higher stamp, men with an aim in life, men who want to mean something, are not satisfied with merely performing routine duties. They aspire to something nobler and more soul-stirring. Not content with fulfilling the duties the world lays upon them, they want to lay upon themselves duties to fulfill. Perhaps, with Bernard Shaw, they feel that the true joy in life is, quote, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. End quote. An ideal like that in itself will exalt a man and give part of the strength needed for its own realization, but it carries with it a great danger. This is the danger that the ideal, instead of finding its outlet in action, may evaporate into daydreams and gorgeous intentions, whose date for fulfillment is always set at some vague time in the future. As a preliminary antidote for such a danger, I suggest these lines of Goethe. Quote, Lose this day loitering, T'will be the same story tomorrow, And the next more dilatory. Then indecision brings its own delays, And days are lost lamenting over days are you in earnest seize this very minute what you can do or dream you can begin it courage has genius power and magic in it only engage and then the mind grows heated begin it and the work will be completed End quote. what goethe saw so powerfully william james saw later and elaborated the idea in a theory which goes beyond even this. That theory appeared in an essay called The Energies of Men. In all English and American literature, there is nothing of its short length, a mere 35 pages, so calculated to inspire a man with a passion for work. It is published in his Memories and Studies, Longman's, Green, and separately. By all means, read it. Read it if you can before your next meal. If it does not inspire you with a passion to go out immediately and do something large and glorious, you are probably not normal. Every sentence and illustration of that essay is so indispensable and so full of meaning that I cannot hope to give you any summary or the gist of it. I can, however, give you a premonition of what it is about, and this itself can best be done for the most part in James' own words. Quote, Everyone knows what it is, he says, to start a piece of work, either intellectual or muscular, feeling stale. And everyone knows what it is to warm up to his job. The process of warming up gets particularly striking in the phenomenon known as second wind. On usual occasions, we make a practice of stopping an occupation as soon as we meet the first effective layer, so to call it, of fatigue. We have then walked, played, or worked enough, so we desist. That amount of fatigue is an efficacious obstruction on this side of which our usual life is cast. But, if an unusual necessity forces us to press onward, a surprising thing occurs. The fatigue gets worse up to a certain critical point, when gradually, or suddenly, it passes away, and we are fresher than before. We have evidently tapped a level of new energy, masked until then by the fatigue obstacle, usually obeyed. There may be layer after layer of this experience. A third and fourth wind may supervene. Mental activity shows the phenomenon as well as physical, and in exceptional cases we may find, beyond the very extremity of fatigue, distress, amounts of ease and power that we never dreamed ourselves to own. Sources of strength habitually not taxed at all, because habitually we never push through the obstruction, never pass those early critical points. End quote for many years james mused upon the phenomenon of second wind trying to find a physiological theory it is evident he decided that our organism has quote, stored up resources of energy that are ordinarily not called upon but that may be called upon deeper and deeper strata of combustible or explosible material repairing themselves by rest as well as do the superficial strata End quote. He compares our energy budget to our nutritive budget. Quote, Physiologists say that a man is in nutritive equilibrium when day after day he neither gains nor loses weight. But the odd thing is that this condition may obtain on astonishingly different amounts of food. Take a man in nutritive equilibrium and systematically increase or lessen his rations. In the first case, he will begin to gain weight. In the second case, to lose it. The change will be greatest on the first day. Lessen the second, still lessen the third and so on, till he has gained all that he will gain, or lost all that he will lose on that altered diet. He is now in nutritive equilibrium again, but with a new weight. And this neither lessens nor increases because his various combustion processes have adjusted themselves to the changed dietary. Just so, one can be in what I might call efficiency equilibrium, neither gaining nor losing power when once the equilibrium is reached, on astonishingly different qualities of work, no matter in what direction the work may be measured it may be physical work intellectual work moral work or spiritual work of course he admits there are limits the trees don't grow into the sky but the very same individual pushing his energies to their extreme may in a vast number of cases keep the pace up day after day and find no reaction of a bad sort so long as decent hygienic conditions are preserved End quote. These are astonishing statements, approaching, if true, a veritable revelation. But James goes on to illustrate the truth of his statement on a wholesale scale. Quote, country people and city people, as a class, illustrate this difference. The rapid rate of life, the number of decisions in an hour, the many things to keep account of, in a busy city man's or woman's life, seem monstrous to a country brother. He doesn't see how we live at all. A day in New York or Chicago fills him with terror. The danger and noise make it appear like a permanent earthquake. But settle him there, and in a year or two, he will have caught the pulse beat. He will vibrate to the city's rhythms. And if he only succeeds in his avocation, whatever that may be, he will find a joy in all the hurry and the tension. He will keep the pace as well as any of us, and get as much out of himself in any week as he ever did in ten weeks in the country. The transformation, moreover, is a chronic one. The new level of energy becomes permanent. End quote. How are we to produce these marvelous results? How are we to draw on our vast unused powers and make them available? How are we to keep ourselves going at the highest efficient speed on all six cylinders instead of idling along, knocking on one, losing compression on another, and missing on three? In the instance of the country folk in the city, the stimuli of those who successfully respond and undergo the transformation are, in James's words, quote, the example of others and crown pressure and contagion. End quote. There is also duty. Quote, the duties of new offices of trust are constantly producing this effect on the human beings appointed to them. End quote. But there are other stimuli than these for bringing out our latent resources. I cannot quote all the inspiring examples which James cites to show the diverse ways in which the resources have been drawn on, but I can summarize the stimuli which he credits for them. They include, in addition to those just mentioned, excitements, ideas, efforts, love, anger, religious crises, love crises, indignation crises, despair in some cases, the suppression of fear thought. Which is the self suggestion of inferiority, end quote. phrases he borrows from Horace Fletcher. Systematic asceticism, quote, beginning with easy tasks, passing to harder ones, and exercising day by day. End quote. Finally, he adds quote, the normal opener of deeper and deeper levels of energy is the will. The difficulty is to use it, to make the effort which the word volition implies. It is notorious that a single successful effort of moral volition, such as saying no to some habitual temptation, or performing some courageous act, will launch a man on a higher level of energy for days and weeks, will give him a new range of power. "'In the act of uncorking the whiskey-bottle which I had brought home to get drunk upon,' said a man to me, "'I suddenly found myself running out into the garden, where I smashed it on the ground.' I felt so happy and uplifted after this act that for two months I wasn't tempted to touch a drop. End quote. There is one stimulus to breaking down the fatigue barriers which James, though he occasionally appears to get close to it, does not mention. It is a very important stimulus. In fact, I am quite prepared to call it the most important of them all. It is sometimes derivative and includes, in part, one or two of the stimuli already referred to. This stimulus is intensity of interest interest excitement absorption in the pursuit of an object make you forget yourself and your discomforts a man who is so tired out from the day at the office that he cannot read his newspaper on the subway who brings home some work and is too tired to understand it after dinner though he makes several attempts and several fresh starts to get his mind down to it may nonetheless turn to a detective story and follow the course of its characters, the clues, the shrewd mental workings of the detective, trying to anticipate his deductions and conclusions, all with the most intense concentration and the highest relish. He may feel too worn out mentally to sit home and read a consular report on a matter of interest to his business, a report containing no long chains of reasoning, nor a single subtle statement. Yet, he will not feel too tired to dress for the theatre and enjoy a Shaw comedy to the full, with one clever and subtle epigram touching off another like a package of firecrackers. A stupid office boy will show intelligence about baseball and professional boxing gossip. The explanation in each case is simply a difference in interest. This principle in the mental field applies quite as strongly in the physical. A man who would be completely tired out if he beat a rug for his wife will play five sets of tennis in an afternoon, absorbing ten times as much physical energy. The first is work, and the second, play. Every soldier is familiar with the intense difference it makes to him whether he is drilling with or without music. In the first case, his step is lighter, his heart is lighter, his rifle is lighter, his fatigue is half gone. Modern gymnasiums are beginning to recognize this effect by giving their calisthenic exercises to the music of a piano or a phonograph. But both drilling and calisthenics are considered work, and the principle is still better illustrated at a dance, where a man is quite unconscious, unless his partner is awkward or unattractive, that he is working. Every man who has ever adventured upon a ballroom floor can tell you how much better he can dance, how much more uncontrollable is his craving to dance, how much longer he can dance with good music than with bad. A man will go to a social affair, and he will dance and dance, he will be there for every encore he will clap and clap for more and when the affair is over and the strains of home sweet home have sent him home in spite of himself he will fall into a taxicab in a state of utter collapse and when he has arrived home he will scarcely have the energy to undress for bed he will finally be in bed at anywhere from half past one to half past three in the morning but let him stay in the office till after midnight let him work till half past one or half past three in the morning and till the end of his life he will never have done telling about that prodigy of accomplishment the same principle which applies to the common man applies to the genius it may sometimes even appear to make a common man into a genius the histories of philosophy and science abound with examples of thinkers apparently apathetic and indolent by nature but who once upon the scent of a new and original theory or discovery had bent themselves to an enormous and astonishing amount of thinking and reading and experimenting and fact-collecting the infinite patience and industry of darwin once he had hit upon the idea of biological evolution and the struggle for survival and the change of herbert spencer from indolence to ambition once he had glimpsed evolution as a universal law applying not only to the body but to the mind to nations to social and economic institutions to language to the stars to morals to manners to beliefs and theories and the marvelous erudition which he acquired in gathering all these facts and weaving them into a gigantic system of twenty volumes of philosophy in spite of the grave handicaps of poor finances and poor health these are but two examples out of hundreds that might be cited the common idea that geniuses, as a rule, are lazy, with a distinct aversion for work in general, is one of the greatest of untruths. The untruth has its origins in the fact that geniuses usually have an aversion toward the particular kind of work which their fathers or the world would set them to. The father would set the son up in some respectable profession, make him a minister, a lawyer, a stockbroker, or have him succeed the father as the head of the tinplate mills. But the genius will have none of it; he is neither docile nor tractable. He will forge his own path. But if he be a true genius, then once he has struck that path, which natural inclination, nay, which every fibre of his being demands that he follow, his industry and pertinacity will make that of your average respectable businessman look like the merest dawdling. If Goethe had been lazy. Could he have turned out 60 volumes? Could Defoe have turned out 210? Could Shakespeare, greatest of them all, have turned out 37 plays and acted in them? Take any classic writer of fiction, Scott or Dickens or Dumas or Dostoevsky, and recall what an imposing thing is the complete works of any one of them when gathered in uniform binding. Could indolent men have wrought these things? We may consider even the classic examples of literary indolence. Samuel Johnson, let us say. He usually wrote only when spurred on by the need of money, and then only enough to keep himself and his wife from starving. After he was pensioned by the king, he indulged his natural sloth by lying in bed until midday and after. Yet, he carried on his magazine, The Rambler, twice a week for two years single-handed. He produced eight volumes of essays, many volumes of biographies, and in his immense dictionary, and to pay for his mother's funeral, wrote Rasselas in Eight Nights. It is evident that when Johnson once set himself to a task, his powers of sustained concentration were such as only the rarest mortals can equal. What we find in literature, we find in every other art. A lazy Michelangelo could not have built St. Peter's, to say nothing of his other works. A lazy Beethoven or Mozart could not have composed the number of works that these men did. Franz Schubert, known for his easy-going, bohemian life, always out of funds, always carefree, yet managed to turn out several overtures, eight symphonies, and six hundred songs. The catalogue does not end with literature and the arts. Napoleon was such a gourmand for work that he could frequently spare only four hours a night for sleep, and sometimes went without that thomas a edison is perhaps the greatest inventor that the world has ever seen by either inventing or improving the electric light the phonograph the telephone the moving picture and patenting hundreds of other inventions he has done more than any single man to make our present-day material civilization what it is yet though now in his seventies he hardly ever takes a holiday sleeps only four consecutive hours and works at all hours of the day and night one could go on and on. And how are these prodigious achievements possible? Geniuses and artists do not doggedly drag themselves through their work. That is not their attitude toward it. They get so much work done because the work they do is their play, their recreation, their passion. And it is so because of their intensity of interest. Warming up to one's work, as cited by James, and the manner in which the mind grows heated, as expressed by Goethe, are simply ways of saying that though you may broach your work without interest and without enthusiasm, you are gradually or suddenly seized by an interest, which up to a certain point continues to mount. With the genius, this interest is greater than with the common man. As psychologists have pointed out, a man is not a genius because he concentrates more than the ordinary man. He concentrates more because he is a genius his ideas overflow. They come with such rapidity, they change the aspects of his subject with such kaleidoscopic variety. They throw so many new and interesting and dazzling lights upon it that his attention is sustained by following them. The dullard, no matter how much of a plugger he may be, finds the utmost difficulty in sticking to any train of thought of his own, because his mind will produce only hackneyed and barren ideas hardly worth attending to. The problem then, in all creative work, is to seek to sustain the interest at the highest pitch, never allowing it to flag. As long as the interest is intense enough, physical and mental fatigue will not greatly matter. Eight times out of nine, it is flagging interest rather than real fatigue, which makes us quit. The phenomena might be represented on a chart by two lines or curves, such as the political economists use for it, demand curves and supply curves starting at the top and slanting downward or starting low, mounting higher and then curving down again, would be a curve or an irregular up and down line representing interest. Starting at the bottom and slanting upward would be a curve or irregular line representing fatigue. At some point, these two lines would meet, and that would be the point at which you would ordinarily quit. There are two ways to put off this point. If, by diversification, by turning from one subject to another, by changing the aspects considered even of a single subject, you can sustain or increase your interest. Then the top line representing interest will not go down to meet the line representing fatigue. The fatigue line will have further to go, higher to mount. The point of intersection may be surprisingly postponed. But if the two lines do meet, you still have a recourse, if you care to use it. That is your will. You can fight through the point by sheer effort, trusting that after a time either the upper interest line will rise again or the lower fatigue line will fall, allowing you another spell of achievement. You can fight through the point by sheer effort, trusting that after a time either the upper limit line will rise again or the lower fatigue line will fall, allowing you another spell of achievement, and so on through other points of intersection. Quote, Heroism. Said W.T. Grenfell, is endurance for one moment more. End quote. I shall be told that this is a very dangerous doctrine, that if put into practice, it would lead to overwork, overstrain, and nervous breakdown. It is possible to overdo it, but I am convinced that for the overwhelming majority of those who read this, there is not the slightest danger of such a thing happening. Most breakdowns attributed to overwork do not come from overwork, but from worry dissipation, and unhygienic living. Indolence will always find excuses for its own existence, and the greatest of these has always been, and will always be, this bogey of overwork. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 Moral Courage I must extend a few warnings before we part, and I can do it briefly. Never boast to your friends about your willpower, they are apt to become cynical and facetious, especially when you have broken some major or minor resolution in a fit of absent-mindedness. You want your friends to know of your willpower, but the best way for them to discover it will be through your actions, not your words. Don't, oh don't, be a prig. A prig is a person who has become vastly well-satisfied with himself his chief pastime is to fill the air with lamentations over the shortcomings of other people he is satisfied with himself because he is so easily satisfied he is the little jack horner who says what a good boy am i a prig's mind dwells on his successes and on what he has accomplished now true willpower is perfectly compatible with true humility and a man of true humility dwells on his shortcomings and on what he has failed to accomplish. The prig is satisfied with himself because in his own eye he is realizing his ideals. But one of the reasons for this is simply that his ideals are low enough to make it easy to realize them. A man of true humility puts his ideal always a little beyond his reach. A prig, for instance, takes credit to himself because he reads good books. The man who is destined to grow criticizes himself because, though he reads good books, he does not think enough for himself. A prig admires himself because he has given five dollars to the Red Cross. A true man, in the same financial circumstances, may be a little ashamed of himself because he has only given fifteen. Things of a similar tenor have been said before. Quote, it is, in general, more profitable, says Carlyle to reckon up our deficits than to boast of our attainments. End quote. And the words of Phillips Brooks are more thrilling. Quote, Sad is the day for any man when he becomes absolutely satisfied with the life that he is living, the thoughts that he is thinking, and the deeds that he is doing. When there ceases to be forever beating at the doors of his soul a desire to do something larger, which he feels and knows he was meant and intended to do. End quote. To resume our admonitions, don't try to be a dominating personality by shouting down your opponents or co workers. Willpower has no necessary connection with noise. Don't be stubborn. Especially, don't be stubborn in your social recreations under the impression that that is willpower. Don't say, We will play bridge, whether anybody else wants to or not. Don't break up the party just because it won't play your way. Don't fancy that willpower is incompatible with making yourself agreeable. The difference between stubbornness and backbone you may imagine to be merely a difference in invective. A man who stands for principles in which you believe has backbone. A man who stands for principles in which you do not believe is stubborn. But the true difference, as I conceive it, is that the stubborn man will not listen to reason. He will persist in the course he has adopted simply to maintain his vanity he won't admit that he has been wrong though he may know it in his heart his notion of willpower is sadly false willpower is constantaneous to the utmost spirit of conciliation this does not mean compromise the man with backbone is willing to listen to argument he will keep his mind open but he will not deviate an inch in principle if he knows himself to be right he will give in before convincing argument he is big enough to admit that he can make mistakes, and even that he has made one in this particular instance. But he will never give in because of mere lack of physical and moral courage. And moral courage is the rarest of all the rare things of this earth. The war has shown that millions have physical courage. Millions were willing to face rifle and cannon, bombardment, poisoned gas, liquid fire, and the bayonet to trust themselves to flying machines thousands feet in the air under the fire of anti-aircraft guns and the machine guns of enemy planes to go into submarines perhaps to meet a horrible death but how many had the courage merely to make themselves unpopular the bitter truth must be told that many enlisted or submitted to the draft on both sides of the conflict not because they were convinced that they were helping to save the world not because they had any real hatred for the enemy, not to uphold the right, but simply because they hadn't the moral courage to face the stigma of slacker or conscientious objector. Perhaps it would be unwise to take for granted that the passions of the war have completely cooled, and possibly many would miss the point if I were to discuss this question from the point of view of our own side. But let us look at it from the German side. The Germans surely had physical courage. Not all of them shouted, Comrade! Or if they did, it is rather strange that it took a world in arms more than four years to defeat them. But how many had moral courage in Germany? How many dared, like Maximilian Harden, to lift their voices against the dominant German creed? And how high dared he lift his? Fear of death? No. The soldiers faced death bravely, but they feared unpopularity. They dreaded the suspicion of their fellows. What was needed in war is needed no less urgently in peace. How many persons in public or even in private life have the courage to say the thing that people do not like to hear? The ancient Greeks were not a superior race of people, but in the little city of Athens, in a period covering only a few hundred years, there came forth thinkers, the splendor of whose fame has not been paralleled, certainly not exceeded, in all the nations of the world, in all the thousands of years that have come since then. Where is the modern triumvirate of philosophers that is greater than Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato? There may have been a number of reasons that brought this flowering of Greek culture, but one of them was this, that thought in Greece was free. A man could arrive at an opinion on a fundamental question different from that of his fellows, without bringing himself into contempt for a thousand years after aristotle there were no thinkers and the reason was that thinking for oneself was despised the authority of aristotle was absolute it applied not only to what he had positively said but to what he had omitted to say if it was not in aristotle it did not exist when in time a few great spirits began to think for themselves they faced a bitter struggle Galileo, supporting the discovery of Copernicus that the earth revolved around the sun, and not the sun around the earth, was compelled publicly to repudiate it. Bacon had to plead against the authority of Aristotle. Locke had to write, quote, Some will not admit an opinion unauthorized by men of old, who were then all giants in knowledge. Nothing is to be put into the treasury of truth or knowledge which has not the stamp of Greece or Rome upon it. And since their days will scarce allow that men have been able to see... Think or write. End quote. What can it profit a man to be able to think if he does not dare to? One must have the courage to go where the mind leads, no matter how startling the conclusion, how shattering, how much he may hurt oneself or a particular class, no matter how unfashionable or how obnoxious it may at first seem. This may require the courage to stand against the whole world great is the man who has that courage for indeed he has achieved will-power end of chapter sixteen end of the way to will-power by henry hazlitt